for August 6th, 2012. It's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 214, Gritty Anti-Pigeon. Welcome to the Overthinking It podcast, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. From the United Kingdom, the bleeding edge of the British Empire. <laughs> I am Matt Rather here uh, with the panel to podcast. I've been away. I've been uh, on international adventure. I still am, but but finally we uh, we find a time. We finally figured this whole time zone thing out. Uh, you know, it, it really uh, was a little confusing for us to start with. Um, guys, I've missed you on the podcast. We missed you too, Matt. Oh, it's really nice to let's let's virtual hug. Let's let's type little hug emoticons into the, <laughs> the back channel uh, chat. Um, right. Uh, let's get right down to it. Uh, lots of stuff to talk about. Uh, maybe update a little bit on uh, on the Olympics uh, as they actually unfold. Um on uh, London and Britishness and, uh, you know, uh, keeping up from last week's podcast, adding the uh, the remake of Total Recall to, uh, yeah. <laughs> Best movie ever, or so my implanted memory of it would lead me to believe. <laughs> Don't get your ass to Mars. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, uh, and all that, so um, all that to come. So, uh, panel, your question this week, what... Would you use – what aspect of life would you use to prove to yourself that the memory – that the reality that you're experiencing is in fact uh, a non-implanted reality? Uh, he did so well on uh, the podcast. He, he really should um, – like, like a, a colonial uh, – a former colony throwing off their colonial uh, oppressors, Pete Fenzel really should overthrow me as the host of this podcast. Oh. It's Pete Fenzel. <laughs> well, I guess in the British style, I'll be a pip pip first over the top, right? Just like back <laughs> in the Great War. Uh, <laughs> okay, so my thinking is that if a futuristic corporation were to try to make a recording of my life to implant into my own brain with certain variations, um, they would have to use recording devices that depended upon kind of vis- visible objects. So the way that I would test to see if uh, my reality was real or an implantation of some corrupt government or private organization is I would go to the parts of my apartment that are messy uh, and I would dig to the second or third layer of mess. <laughs> and uh, I would fi- figure out because if they were recording it in some way, uh, the objects near the bottom should probably be kind of like nondescript, right, or like generic or repeatable, right? It seems unlikely that they would be able to, to – construct like or they would be willing to dedicate the processing power to every item of of clothing that's like in my hamper or in these laundry baskets or every bottle of sparkling water that's on the ground (laughs) (laughs) basically i would go spelunking into my personal belongings i go to my bookshelf and i look at the under the second stack of books in front of the books that are actually upright and i would see if i recognize those titles and and i figure that uh cost cutting would have prevented people from fully realizing those aspects that they figured would never see the light of day so there you go (laughs) excellent and i get my ass to mars that too but that (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Mark, how would you get your ass to Mars? No, how would you know? <laughs> That's probably a better question. How would you get your ass to Mars? How would you catapult. get your ass? Catapult. No. Uh, t- two weeks. Tre- trebuchet. Two, two yeah. weeks. That's a throwback there for those who remember the original Total Recall. Um, 
but before I get the answer to my question, I do want to add that, um, that I want to sort of talk about the original Total Recall and the memory and legacy of Arnold Schwarzenegger, our favorite actor, uh, later on in the context of Total Recall and, of course, the greatest movie ever made, Terminator 2. But we'll save that for later. Um, so I will uh, choose sort of as my uh, evidence check for whether I'm living in a dream or not is the existence of movies like Total Recall and Inception, which call into question the, uh, you know, the state of dream or reality. Oh, but wait. What if the government makes those movies into my dream so that I look at that and I assume that, oh, because those are there, then the government isn't fooling me. But wait. What if it's a, oh, my God, my mind is melting. <laughs> join the resistance, Mark. <laughs> those movies are signals to you to join the resistance. Has that always been the case? Didn't you guys know that? You're supposed yeah. to go down to the uh, rail yards and meet up with a bunch of shady people in long coats, and uh, they'll help you overthrow the oppressive regime that we all live under. Okay, okay, forget that idea about the movies. I think the existence of belly button lint uh, <laughs> is pretty much deadly. That's a detail, you know. That um, let's be honest here. Uh, who's really going to include that in, in, in a simulation yeah. of, uh, of, our, of our mindscapes? It's not a bug, it's a feature. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. No, it's not a bug, it's a it's a piece of fabric. You know, it's a uh if a bug were in your belly button, that would be really disgusting. John Parrish! What up? What up, what up? So this is kind of an obscure one, but there'll be a certain segment of the audience that'll really dig it, and for the rest of you you'll just have to sit patiently while I explain. So in the Super Nintendo game Final Fantasy VI which I devoted a lot of hours to it as a child, so the memory programmers who simulate this would have to go really, really deep in my memory to get it going. There's a sequence fairly early on in the game where, for those of you who've played it, it's when, you're, it's when your party splits up after having met the, the revolutionaries, whatever they're called, and you're on the rapids. And so you're on this raft, and you're navigating down these rapids, and there are several points where you have to choose which path down the rapids you're going to take. And there's one point where if you keep choosing if you keep choosing to go left, I think at a certain point, you will find yourself continuing to loop back around the same point for a theoretically infinite period of time. So if you have a controller that has uh, auto fire enabled on one of the buttons, you can you know select it so that the the so you can select it so that your party will infinitely be looping on this on this sequence fighting an infinite number of monsters and healing themselves an infinite period of time because you have a character at that point who can heal people for free and such you can as such you can tape down the controller button or just like affix it in place in some other way and then leave the game for hours at a time so your party just levels up sufficiently so like after a few hours of play you'll everyone in that everyone in that section of the party will be at level 99 or something now, my theory is that at a certain point, like 40 to 50 hours in, the memory programmers who are watching me simulate this infinite loop would just give up and say, all right, we give up. This is, this is all a dream sequence. We're not going to watch you play a video game on infinite loop for 60 hours. <laughs> we, we give up. We're done with you. This is pathetic. Like, what, why are we even simulating? Why are we even wasting processing cycles simulating processing cycles within this video game? You've made us question our jobs and our purpose in life. You're pathetic. We're ejecting you from the, the implant and memory capsule. I would right. say, yes! No more and recall then, No more recall for you. So that you'd make your life so boring so that it wasn't worth the dystopian government <laughs> to continue to simulate yes, it. <laughs> exactly. I would, I, would, uh, I would deliberately induce simulation fatigue in the, in, in the conspiracy that is implanting my mind. Mm. That's it. Uh, that's interesting, and is is just a, it's a different kind of response than the first two responses, which were um, uh, 
which had to do with some aspect of the some aspect of the actual world that it seems not worth it to um, uh, not worth it to uh, to simulate. And that's yes, that's and where. It, and, and, I, for, and for the record, when I spent like eighty to ninety hours playing video games as a teenager, mom and dad, that's what I was trying to do. I was trying to prove that you know my mind was a simulation. I wasn't just wasting time playing video games. You know, I was like there could have been simulations in my in my head stuff. Well, that's the sort of thing. That's the sort of thing that, as a smart teenager, you know what I mean. As like a, a cognitively, intellectually precocious teenager, you can get kind of obsessed by things like this, and they can get a little scary sometimes. Like, well, what? Yeah, what if it is all virtual reality? You know, I don't. Or, or you know, I don't know, free will versus determinism, or, or things like this. And you don't. You don't necessarily. You you have the 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 cognitive ability to pose the questions for yourself, but not yet the tools to kind of. You know, cheat your way out of the. You don't have the cheat codes, as it were, which you learn in college. <laughs> you know the the uh, what the philosophical cheat codes uh, of uh, insoluble riddles. So you 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 may well have been. I, I believe very uh, very readily that you would uh, might have been really troubled by that question as a as a young squire. Yes, and also, uh, also, Ultros the Octopus was trying to tell you to join the resistance. Yes, uh, <laughs> he, he was, but he was a little he was a little too surreal for me to pick up on it. Although, really, if you're trying to break someone into the resistance to reality as you recognize it, the only way to recruit them would be through surreality, which so, is actually uh, uh, oh. very relevant to our conversation later. But I'll, I'll let Mac, uh, <laughs> Mac go first. Well, no, my, my, my initial impulse had been what, uh, what Pete and Mark said, that is to say, find some element of reality that is, you know, not worth it to, uh, not worth it to simulate. I was going to go for junk mail. You know, I was going to go for the, like the glossy circulars, uh, with, you know, <laughs> like the coupons, you know, for the Safeway or for the, the, I, I don't know what you, you have in Boston for the, the, uh, star market or something like that. Right. Like, um, <laughs> So where, you're saying, you know, like, has anyone actually opened a value pack, like a coupon <laughs> value pack, one of those, like, right. thick envelopes? Is there just blank paper in there? Is that <laughs> – I, I, found, I found a wonderful local dry cleaner in the value pack, and, uh, and I have stuck with that dry cleaner in Los Angeles, uh, even though I can no longer use the value pack uh, coupons because they say quite clearly on there they are valid for uh, new customers only. And though I've thought of coming in with different disguises – you know, to uh, uh, to fool the guy. Um, I won't do that because he's quite a good dry cleaner. And yes, so I, I opened it in the value pack. Yeah, a lot of a uh, lot of dry cleaning, uh, a lot of dry cleaning coupons. But that just you know you couldn't simulate that, right? Like you couldn't do that down to the uh, down to the level of detail uh, that it would re- require. So Matt, are you saying that if we haven't opened up the value pack? and we don't know if the value pack is containing actual coupons or just blank pieces of paper, then we really have no way of knowing if we're living in a dream world or not. Mark, I think it's a case of Schrodinger's value pack. (laughs) Can't use that one. It's too easy. Pushing right along. Pete, you saw the... uh... Pete, you you saw the film, so yes. uh, why don't you why don't you give us the field report from the new uh, the new Total Recall? Cool, yeah, sure. Okay, so there are there are three interesting things about the new Total Recall. Uh, one of them is one scene in the movie, <laughs> which is good, and the rest of it is not as good. Uh, which is a scene where uh, Colin Farrell sits down and remembers that he knows how to play piano, 
right? And it's sort of a very kind of genuine scene, and it's kind of a little bit of a vulnerability scene, and there's a real emotional core to it. And it's also the same scene where he gets the projection of himself, right, that tells him, by the way, like, I don't know, I guess there's going to be total recall spoilers, I guess, but I don't <laughs> think that that should really bother you, because this is not a movie, the, the remake isn't, isn't, go see the original one, it's, it's more fun. Um, but anyway, there's one good scene where Colin Farrell sees his previous self, and he's playing the piano, and there's cool stuff happening. The rest of it's kind of flat and drab. The second interesting thing about the movie is the sort of cycle of how it comes about in terms of its development, right? So they made Total Recall in 1990. They were going to make a sequel about uh, of Total Recall called Total Recall 2, and they decided to adapt the Philip K. Dick story Minority Report to make that sequel. That sequel got shelved for a really long time and eventually became the movie Minority Report. Uh, and then this movie, stylistically, is basically a sequel to minority report right it's like it's not really related all that much aesthetically and in conceptually to the first total recall the plot's the same but the the whole look and feel and what it's kind of trying to accomplish is very much based on on minority report uh and and not on total recall which introduces a whole bunch of, of problems but the third interesting thing about it is that this movie does does one really good thing for you i think which is really it really challenges you and poses the question what did you like about the original Total Recall in the first place? <laughs> right? Because right? the, movie, the movie, in a lot of ways, is better than the original Total Recall. It's got a higher budget. Uh, there are fewer out-and-out -out mistakes. You know, like there are lines in the old one where Arnold's like, but I don't know if this is real. You know, and it's like that you could have done another take like that was kind of awkward you know like like there's fewer things that are just out and out like why is this here no that was um, that was the good take pete that was like you know <laughs> that was like take 34 you know what i mean right, that was right, as right. good as it got during the yeah i mean it's it's a professional slickly made movie the the design of everything is very very highly detailed if not conceptually all that great there's tons of elevator shaft sequences with a really not all that many buildings <laughs> just like tons and tons and tons of elevator shafts uh, but at any rate <laughs> Um, you know, the acting is really professional. The the look and feel is kind of gritty, and it tries to make it feel more plausible. Uh, and yet, there's some whatever was magical or or effective about the original Total Recall is entirely absent, like just totally mm -hmm. gone. Uh, long stretches of this movie are just totally joyless and, and just very interchangeable with other movies. And the whole plot of do I know whether this is real or not, it just doesn't work as well as the original Total Recall did. And now that might be nostalgia talking that might be well when i saw the original total recall i was like 12 i mean it came out when i was 10 well Fendel, right? that's that's my that's my first question and it's it's something i wonder about all philip k dick movies because all movies based on a philip k dick short story or novel or property of some sort have have a scene in them where the protagonist has some conversation about whether or not they know things are real and it's noteworthy only because the actor that's given this this dialogue, this speculation, is rarely someone we would consider a great actor. Yes. Like, for instance, Arnold Schwarzenegger in the original Total Recall, where he has where the doctor shows up on Mars and he's trying to convince him that he's still back in Recall, and Schwarzenegger says, "All right, let's see you're telling the truth, and this is all a dream. I can pull this trigger, and it won't matter." Yeah. So, <laughs> or Keanu Reeves in A Scanner Darkly, or. I mean, Harrison Ford's a good actor, but he, it was it's well documented that he wasn't really into Blade Runner, that he didn't quite get what was going on and, and wasn't a huge fan of the material. So his conversations about what is real and what is not are, are kind of flat. I, I think really the best example is Peter Weller in the mid-90s sci-fi horror film Screamers, which is based on the Philip K. Dick's second, uh, short story Second Variety. 
that, wait, that's that's a Philip K. Dick story? That used to scare the crap out of me, that movie. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and if anything, I think the short story is actually scary. Right. Although the, the movie itself is is pretty chilling. So that that's my recommendation for you uh, overthinkers on the uh, on the listening end. Check out uh, check out Screamers if you can get it off of Netflix or Blockbuster or whatever the equivalent is. It's uh, it's a good time. But yeah. anyway, there's always some sequence where the plot where the action sort of grinds to a halt so everyone can talk about how they know that what they're in is real or not. Is there such a sequence in this movie? And if so, how does it work? Oh, there are a bunch of them. Uh, I mean, uh, there are there are a bunch of scenes that are like that. There's one. There's a confrontation scene that happens in the original movie as well, uh, where one of so Colin Farrell is like a factory worker, right? And he uh, the movie. There's a lot about the movie that's different in terms of its overall framings, but I'll, I'll skip that for the moment. Um, there's a scene where one of uh, Colin Farrell's coworkers from his sort of mundane life shows up and tries to tell him that he's still in the recall situation. Right. Right. Like he's still in the thing and what he's seeing isn't real. He's having a paranoid delusion. Everyone around him is a manifestation and he needs to shoot Jessica Beale in order to sort of break the program and get out of it. Right. Um, and this is similar to the scene that happens in Total Recall where the doctor from Recall tells Arnold Schwarzenegger that he needs to like, I think, shoot himself in order to get out of his own take a pill. Oh, he's taking a pill. That's right. He's taking yeah. a pill. And then, um, so there's that. And, and there's a red pill and there's a blue pill. And Oh, sorry. Wait, no, different movie. Sorry. Forgive me. Sorry. There's, there's also a scene which is probably the most interesting one and that addresses this question in the movie where Bill Nye, right, who plays the sort of um, – it's not a mutant guy in this one. It's like Wait, a, do you mean do you mean the science guy he? No. <laughs> No, I mean the guy from Underworld who gets his face chopped in half, and also the guy from Love Actually. Well, spoiler alert. What? If you haven't seen Underworld by now, like you've forfeited your right to not find out what happens to Bill Nye's face. Um, it is, in fact, chopped in half. Um, but, you know, the British actor, the older British actor. But, yeah, um, he's, uh, he's in this movie as Matthias, the leader of the resistance, um, who in the Arnold Schwarzenegger movie is like a mutant conjoined twin that's like in a guy's stomach. But in this one, he's an uh, old guy who lives in Oxford. Um, and uh, and he has this talk with Colin Farrell about how the past is a construction and it fools us. And to really understand who we are, we have to think about what's happening in the present. And Colin Farrell's like, but I believe this and I believe that. And I don't know. Right. Um, and there's a couple of other times where Colin Farrell's like, oh, what's real? I don't know what's real. This is crazy. You know, like um, but the biggest scene is definitely this, the confrontation and the sort of Mexican standoff that happens. Um, okay. Because in, 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 a, in a Philip K. Dick movie, the, those conversations are, are rarely just expository or scene-setting set pieces, like uh, the way you seem to describe the, the Bill Nye conversation, where it's two characters just talking out the theme of the movie, but it doesn't have any real impact on the plot as such. In a Philip K. Dick movie, they tend to be directly relevant to the plot like in the original total recall where it's you know will schwarzenegger you know fall for the the villain's con game or will he see through it like that's that's a that's a forking point in the narrative and similarly in, in this remake as you describe it where i i think it's Bo- is bokeem woodbine his his co-worker who shows up and tries to trick him uh, that since he's the only black guy in the movie, I'm guessing that's probably who that is. <laughs> okay. It's a yeah. future. It's a by the way, it's a future that that is entirely in Britain and Australia, where everybody is either American or Chinese. Okay, uh, so yeah, yeah. <laughs> that, 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 that totally works. That, yeah. that makes perfect sense. So, and, and in fact, thinking about it, I was get to uh, New South Wales. <laughs> 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 I was thinking about it and. And the one director who I would say does a better job of 
grappling with the questions of identity and reality and making them germane to the plot of a movie better than, than anyone else who tackles Philip Dick's material is Christopher Nolan. If you look at Memento, if you look at Insomnia, if you look at The Prestige or Inception, like they're, they're movies where it's not just talking about what is reality in the sense of two characters sitting around saying, what is reality? You know, freshman dorm bull sessions. But in the sense that the question of what is reality, what is identity, is directly relevant to the actions of the protagonist and the people opposing him. Right. And I think that uh, to contrast it with some of the big Philip K. Dick novels, uh, movie, movies based on stories, not necessarily on novels, but say Minority Report, Blade Runner, Original Total Recall, they don't locate that uh, philosophical or that psychological conflict in the psychological life of the character strictly. Right, it's it's not like you're watching a psychological drama where the character is kind of piecing it all together. A lot of the times, the life of the character is kind of it, it seeps out of the character's own internal life and is reflected in the setting and is what's happening around the character. Right, like there's surrealism and symbolism, especially in a scanner darkly. Right, where, yeah. where you know it's animated, it's, it's rotoscoped a lot of it. Yes. Or yes. Yeah, it's all rotoscoped. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is when they they take film footage and then they animate on top of it right for people who aren't as familiar um but yeah but in that case you don't necessarily you're not just relying on uh keanu reeves to communicate to you how disoriented he is and weirded out by what's happening he's a cartoon right and the world around him is kind of impermanent and shifting and while that is certainly it's there in movies like memento and inception certainly the world around them is weird nolan does tend to ground that that kind of conflict within the psychology of the character in a way that's kind of readily identifiable, right? Yeah, and, yeah. and not in a way that's kind of like splayed out all over the all over the, the visuals. And I think this movie tries to do that more, but I think it ultimately fails uh, because, well, for a bunch of reasons. Um, and I think the main one is that uh, they try to make Colin Farrell's psychological conflict about whether this is real or not seem more plausible, but in doing so, they kind of lower the stakes for him so that he never seems to really confront how crazy the thing he's being asked to believe actually is, right? Like, uh, like he's, he's really anxious the whole movie, and he's kind of like, oh, I don't know what's going to happen. Oh, I'm Colin Farrell. I'm so upset. You know, like he's, and he's like sort of running along. He's running away from things a lot. He's like, this is so strange. But, I mean, the Arnold character, like, he's like roaring and snarling with his eyes going crazy. He's like jumping on top of tables with machine guns next to little people. You know, like he's like he's doing all these like incredibly weird, crazy things. And his he's sort of owning up to that. Like the way that he portrays the character kind of owns up to how extreme ever he's being asked uh, all the things that he's being asked to believe are. Whereas for Colin Farrell, it's like he has about the level of incredulity that like uh, Taylor Lautner has in that movie where he has to slide down the side of a building. But right? that's, oh, no, I remember that. Bad things are happening. Oh boy, you know, like Sheila Booth and Crystal Skull. You know, remi- like, I, it reminds me of the scene in Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Spoiler alert for you know the first volume of Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. After the Earth has been blown up and they get to Magrathia and Slarty Bartfast tells them that the uh, you know that the Earth was a giant com- computer sent to uh, or built to determine the question of life, the universe, and everything. Arthur says, "Oh, all my life I've had this strange sense of things not being quite what they seem, and that there was this sort of impenetrable conspiracy just below the surface of life. It turns out I'm right." And Slarty Bartfast says, "No, no, no. That's just garden variety paranoia. Everyone in the universe has that. You're, you know, you're not, you're not that special." But yeah. in, in um, in uh, in seriousness, now I think I mean 
it's a question of like acting style, isn't it? Like uh, Colin Farrell, who is, um, uh, I nearly said Colin Firth. And actually, it might be really an interesting thought experiment to imagine Colin Firth uh, doing Total Recall. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> the, there's the, the wife wouldn't be able to hit him. Like, she'd be like, oh, it's Colin Firth. Um, um, yes, I'm, um, I'm not sure uh, whether this is the right reality or um, not. I, uh, uh, well, yes, I. Uh, anyway, that'd, that'd, uh, be very, Colin, that'd be a very mannered romantic comedy of sorts. Almost, <laughs> almost like. Almost like Vertigo with a laugh track. Like, right? Am I, am I married to the right woman? What, what? 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 What is this? I don't. I don't. I don't. It's not. I'm not. It's. It's. I'm sure. But hold on. Hold on. <laughs> right. Yeah. But yeah. Let's and not slip into Hugh Grant Total Recall, though. That's a tough one. <laughs> get, get your, get your uh, uh, Aston Moss. Yes. <laughs> yes. It reminds me of a, of a scene in Not- Notting Hill where Hugh Grant is posing as a reporter for Horse and Hound magazine, and he gets into the press junket. He asks the. Uh, the you know famous Spanish actor or or, uh, or maybe Latin American actor, but the the famous non English speaking actor through a translator, uh, uh, you know, uh, because he has to think of something. Um, did you did you feel that you had much in common with your character to draw on? And the answer is no. And he says, why? Uh, because my character was a giant flesh eating monster, and <laughs> and I am not. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, sorry. I, I, See, I, I, I'm, I'm not actually a wizard. I pretend to be a wizard. Yes. Uh. <laughs> Sir Ian, Sir Ian, Sir Ian, Sir Ian, action. You shall not pass. No, but this is, this is I think, directly related. Sorry, Mark. I'll, I'll, I'll finish this point. Okay, you okay, can, okay. In, all, in all seriousness, because I digress a lot. Um, the, this is related to a point you made on a podcast a couple weeks ago when you were talking about the difference between naturalistic acting, which is like kind of just, go, you know, going around as you do every day, and uh, the, the use of an actor's facilities, uh, faculties for um, for some expressive purpose, right? And like, uh, you know, whatever else you say about, whatever you can say against Arnold, he is an avant-garde, experimental, uh, <laughs> you know, cutting-edge performance artist yeah. who uses his body for expressive purposes, his body and his voice, uh, you know, in, in service of these things, and not necessarily uh, for the purpose of, of verisimilitude, but, you know, Colin Farrell, who is, who is sort of celebrated uh, as an actor for his ability to, you know, convey things realistically, um, right? Like, uh, it's the wrong approach to take, right, in an action movie. I think it's also the wrong approach to take in a movie based on a Philip K. Dick what is reality situation. I think that's what John is getting after because all of the actors who are really successful in movie adaptations of Philip K. Dick novels have either some degree of expressive intensity. Think about Tom Cruise, right, and the way he sort of like stares at everything, right, and like him sort of standing and looking up at the sky, right? Like think of Keanu Reeves and his kind of dumbfounded regard for existence in pretty much everything he does. Like think of Harrison Ford and his sort of, you know, grumpy crumbly, crumbly mountainside of a, of a, you know, it's like all of these actors who are successful in these sort of like what is reality roles are doing uh, the latter of what you're talking about. Actually, it might have been the former. It's, I don't remember It's the funny, order. all the actors uh, who, are doing the express, who are doing the expressive and not the representative thing. And it's, it's, um, it's interesting, all the actors that you talk about are not really known for their, you know, ability to transform themselves into... Uh, into a character who who is you know in mannerism and physicality and voice etc very much unlike them they're they're actors who are known for kind of bringing what they bring the same to every project 
I would say I would beg to differ, at least with regards to Tom Cruise and his turn as um, as Lex Grossman, I well, believe, yeah, in, okay. uh, in Tropic Thunder. Okay, fair but enough. Prior to that, <laughs> fine. Show. But well, later. I mean, I don't know. I would also point to Tom Cruise and his turn in The Last Samurai, where he doesn't really oh. go too far from home, yet <laughs> goes halfway around the world. The Last Samurai. Well, I mean, Tom Cruise is Tom Cruise has has sort of shown us that he has this ability to become this comic character, right? Uh, but I think in a lot of his dramatic roles, I mean, like in Rain Man, right? He's not really that far away. I, I, I get you what you mean. I, I, I still think that what Matt says makes sense, but yeah, definitely. Okay, so can I, can I use this opportunity to segue to, to talk about Arnold and the play that I saw this weekend? Sure. Yeah, sure, sure, sure. <laughs> which, did, which did not include which – us, which sort of did include Arnold Schwarzenegger, actually. So let me get to that in a second. Uh, Pete, let me go back to what you said earlier about this movie being joyless yes. compared to the original Total Recall. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think germane to this conversation we're just having, uh, the reason why this movie is joyless is because it doesn't have Arnold Schwarzenegger, right? Who, That's a uh, little bit of an oversimplification, but run with it, sure. Okay, so <laughs> what, are the, what are the joyful, gleeful, kind of crazy moments that we most remember? From the original Total Recall are uh, Arnold's eyes bucking out when he's uh, Get deprived to of the oxygen. Chopper. That's a different movie. Um, no, but the lines that are God in this movie. If you want to live. Different movie. He says, consider that. It's not cons- a tumor. Okay, let's Jingle the, all the way. Remember the lines. The Iceman cometh. <laughs> In all seriousness, no. get your ass to Mars. Consider that the divorce. Give these people air. These, that, that's the joy element there. Or right? even when he that, pulls the thing out of his nose. <laughs> also that, right? Fantastic yeah, yeah. stuff, right? And this all speaks to uh, you know, the, the, the physicality of Arnold and his, his outsized uh, uh, personality and his presence on screen right? that, is, uh, that, is, that is missing, seems like, from, from this movie. Um, and and so why, why we're talking about, when we're talking about Arnold Schwarzenegger uh, in this context, it seems like um, with this and other things that happened, but you know his exit from politics and return to acting, uh, people are sort of looking back and and reevaluating Arnold's career and in a lot of ways uh, renewing their appreciation for what he does do on screen, right? And and not just sort of uh, you know. Uh, 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 disparage him as a as a as a, as a not talented actor who just does the same thing over and over again in action movies, right? Oh, I am so glad. I am so glad that Expendables two is going to feature more Arnold than yeah. Expendables one. Oh, hey, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. featured. It will be a, a still a still better movie for it. And and when when you see it, I uh, I urge you go. Uh, get the enhanced theater experience, which is you, you may recall from this very podcast. That's what I got for Expendables One. It means the loud barrage of sound, deafening, seat shaking barrage of sound theater experience. It means the cower in fear yeah. uh, of the decibel <laughs> level. And I can just uh, you know I can see him jumping in the smart car uh, and just hearing that that frame crunch under him. You yeah. know, in in doubly. I'm definitely looking forward to Expendables Two. Uh, really just because of Ar- Arnold has a larger larger part in it. Okay, so now let me go back to what I was talking about, seeing Arnold Schwarzenegger in a play this weekend. Um, as some of you who saw uh, on Overthinking It earlier this week, um, uh, we uh, had the opportunity to interview the creator of the show Terminator 2 Judgment Play, which is obviously based on Terminator 2 Judgment Day, which starred Arnold Schwarzenegger. And I got to see the show uh, yesterday, uh, that is the day before we recorded this, uh, on Saturday. Um, and the most important part about – there are two important things about this show. One is that it reminds you how important the character of young John Connor is in this because uh, the actor who played uh, John Connor did an excellent job sort of like overly emoting and doing the whole like uh, early 90s uh, – you know, uh, 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 the Catwabunga sort of Bart, Bart Simpson 
thing going on. Um, uh, but the other thing that was, that was really important about this movie, uh, this this play, was that they cast the role of the Terminator or the Arnold Arnold Coom Terminator uh, from the audience. Okay, they basically called up uh, whoever wanted to try to audition for the part of the Terminator to come up on stage, and there were about ten people showed up out of an audience of, let's say, about uh, a couple hundred, um, and, uh, and and do their best Arnold Schwarzenegger impression, and then the audience uh, chose. Who did the best uh, based on their performance of you know of uh, uh, of giving delivering the lines and like flexing their muscles and that sort of thing, um, and to which I responded that, can you think of any any other actor where you could put on a stage adaptation of a movie that they did and then ask for volunteers in the audience to try to impersonate that actor? Can you think of yes any anybody yes. else? Okay. Okay. Because this no. has actually. Do you do you know what the answer is? Because this has actually been done before. Uh, I, I don't. Hit me. There's a very well, not very famous, but there's a famous uh, live theater adaptation of Point Break, where the role of Keanu Reeves is cast from the audience. Uh, and similarly, the, that explains it. Because the guy who created Terminator Two is the guy who did the live Point Break. Okay. Well, then then there you go. But the but the the conceit there being that the guy who plays Keanu Reeves has his lines fed to him on cue cards, so he yep. literally does not know what he is saying until it's flashed right in front of him. And everyone else is, of course, rehearsed and knows what they're doing. Yeah, pretty much the exact same mechanics were followed in this one as well, too. Um, I don't know, tell me, uh, John, in the Point Break adaptation, um, uh, the lines that he's being fed, are they all from Point Break, or are they just sort of tap into the other, the larger... No, they're all, they're all Point Break lines, as far as okay. I know. I've never so, actually seen so, it. So this adaptation of Terminator 2 uh, borrows heavily, heavily from other Arnold Schwarzenegger movies. Um, so this movie's just as much a celebration of Arnold as it is a celebration slash spoof of, of Terminator 2. Um, this play. I say all of this you know, as evidence or as, as testimonial to, uh, to the unique... Uh, enduring power and legacy of Arnold Schwarzenegger's uh, output from the peak of his career, um, and uh, and so, so we're, we're missing that, right? I mean, this is what we're seeing here: this new version of Total Recall without Arnold, without his outsized screen presence, and without the the the, the, the cheesy one-liners in an Austrian accent that only he was able to deliver. Yeah, I mean, that's definitely one of the big things that's missing from the movie. But the movie is also. Uh, and if I may be permitted to, to move this to the next piece a little bit, it also misses Paul Verhoeven, who's the other crazy mm-hmm. person involved in the original Total Recall, <laughs> other than Sharon Stone, who is actually also another crazy person who's in the original Total Recall. And I mean crazy in terms of their artistic work kind of uh, departs from the level of safety that you would generally expect from uh, a Hollywood performer. I mean Sharon Stone, I think it, by now at least, has a reputation as a bit more of an aggressive risk taker. In terms of uh, how she acts and speaks and whatnot. But yeah, but Verhoeven also, similar to Schwarzenegger, I mean, it's less noticeable because his face isn't there to associate with it. But yeah, this is the guy from you know, Starship Troopers and the Robocop and all this other stuff. And, and I think hit to him is largely attributable that the world is capable of keeping up with Arnold. 
in in the weirdness, right? That it's it's sort of like a a, a back and forth. There's an interplay uh, and responses between what Arnold does and sort of what the Total Recall world around him does. Like the sort of realized Mars with the little people and like the sex shops and the you know crazy three, three boob tri- uh, prostitute. Let's not forget that. Which is such a there's a three boob pro- prostitute in the Colin Farrell, Farrell Total Recall as well, and it is totally a throwaway scene and accomplishes nothing and like has none of the um transgressiveness of the three boob prostitute in the original total recall none of the surprise i mean of course it happened before i guess you have to raise the stakes or change them in some way four, four, four boob prostitute yeah five boob six you need boobs. a uh, you need a five boob prostitute uh it, y- y- you know what you call that sanctity <laughs> i i don't i don't it's we, a, it's a friend it. it's french never mind oh god <laughs> Oh, oh my gosh. Oh. Oh. <laughs> well, okay. This actually oh. brings this what what did you just get it? Yeah, I just got it. Oh, I just got it too. All right. Thanks, Matt. I appreciate it. <laughs> well, this brings this brings to another really big difference between the old Total Recall and the new unless you want to talk about Arnold more. I mean, we can keep talking about Arnold. No, no, let's talk but, about uh, Barbara, Paul Barrowman. So 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 the biggest the biggest change in the new Total Recall, other than the absence of Arnold, is that they get rid of Mars. Right? Doesn't happen on Mars. Uh, instead, they turn it into like, the original Total Recall is kind of a colo- has a colonialist edge to it, or like post-colonialist edge to it, right? Where Mars is a colony of Earth, and the governor of Mars is keeping the Martians down by limiting their access to air, so they can't live freely and have to live in his compound and do what he says, right? And that's Michael Ironsides, captain of the USS Ironsides, right? Is the villain in, in the no, first? No, no, he's Total just Recall. the henchman. Um, oh, he's the, just the henchman, the, the bad guy from RoboCop. Uh, oh right! Is, is Kohagen who does not give the people air? Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, so classic eighties um, character actor Ronnie Cox is the villain in uh, the first Total Recall. Right, right, right. I see Michael Ironsides, and I assume he's the star of everything that he's in. <laughs> uh, but in this one, it's Britain and Australia. Right, the rest of the world's been wiped out by chemical warfare. The only places left are Britain and Australia, and there's a a tunnel that has been dug through the center of the Earth. Stick with me here. Uh, that has an elevator in it. And it's not the only elevator in the movie, but it's the most important one to the plot. And uh, and so every day there's a bunch of workers who live in the colony, as it's called, who get in uh, elevators like a sort of t- a Tower of Terror situation, right, and plummet through the center of the earth to rise in like – London, right? I don't know exactly where because they it all looks like an airport. It's very interchangeable, all the future places that they go to. Um, but basically, Colin Farrell lives in Australia, and every day he goes to this train, basically, that goes him through the center of the Earth to Britain to work in a factory that makes robot soldiers. And so the plot of the movie is that uh, evil Brian Cranston, the, uh, the chancellor of the Federation of Britain, wants to kill all the people who live in Australia so that the people who live in Britain can move there because there's not enough space for them. Um, and, and so he wants to send the – he wants to increase the number of soldiers, of robot soldiers that he has by driving up fear of this terrorist group by staging fake bombings. And, and, and uh, that's the whole plot, right? Is, and so the thing, that, the thing that this does in the sort of Verhoeven, Arnold Schwarzenegger sense is it takes what's a pretty fantastical – Concepts, which I'm sure the filmmakers were uncomfortable with, right? It's like, oh, it's a Martian colony that has no air because of ancient technologies being suppressed or what have you, right? Like, they're like, okay, that's too outlandish. Like, this movie's already pretty outlandish. Let's make it more accessible. Um, but in making it more accessible and sort of realistic, 
the implausibility of it becomes more pronounced. You know, and the difficulty – there's a difficulty in accepting it. There's less of an emotional resonance to it. It's less symbolic, right? Um, I mean it doesn't really make sense that if they're oppressing the colony and already everybody works for like really crud wages, right, and, and that they'd want to kill them because they already own them, right? Like it, it, it's – I don't know. I'm sort of I'm some I know I'm rambling a little bit but that's no, kind no, of No 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 you're not it's a it's a related well I mean maybe you are but it it's a related problem to the to the problem to the problem with the acting right like the the answer to this thing is uh, the answer to the problem of I feel uncomfortable with this premise is not to soft pedal the premise right it's not to like apply a sort of naturalism or a sort of um you know as a a a uh what a uh, dissonant idea of plausibility um, to the uh, right to to the plot. That is to say, in storytelling, you should never apologize uh, for the premise, you know, or for the for the kind of story uh, that that you're going to tell. Right. You're, you're presumably there to tell a story that that gives pleasure to the audience. Uh, that's enjoyable to listen to. And if you if you try to uh, in a weak way, try to make the story something that it's not, you're you're doing everyone a disservice. It's, it's something that I to, to quote myself. Uh, I, I wrote an article on the site several years ago. I want to say back in 08 or 09 about a series of fan made films about Mortal Kombat. The uh, the video game series that were starring uh, Michael J. White, uh, Michael J. White, and uh, what's her name from the Star Trek series? She played a Borg in the skin tight costume. You know, what I mean, Jerry, Wal- Jerry, Jerry Taylor, Jerry Taylor. Thank you. And it was supposed to be like this gritty, not quite naturalist, but more naturalist than the original original story material retelling slash adaptation of the Mortal Kombat universe in which the guy who plays Reptile is really suffering from harlequinotic theosis and the guy who plays Scorpion is part of this legendary group of high-paid contract assassins and the guy who played Johnny Cage was really a secret agent posing as a movie star, etc., etc. And this immense level of gritty realism about a video game which is about Japanese gods and wizards who can change their shape and four-armed mutants in a martial arts tournament like it's 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 implying as it's imposing as you say a level of naturalism to material that doesn't really benefit from it yeah just for just for the sake of just for the sake of of touching on it because of the belief whether true or false that naturalistic is somehow more compelling that it's it's prettier or more exciting in some way to quote uh, again, and and then so this rhymes with what Pete is pointing to, what I'm pointing to, what John is pointing to. It's it's the same thing that Pete wrote about in his article about the Hurt Locker on overthinking it, where you know a lethal weapon was in many ways uh, the strong version of the Hurt Locker, right? And it's just that our ideas about behavior and biopower and science and and uh, you know what have you have have altered uh, between right between then. Uh, then and now, and I think joylessness is actually not a bad word. Uh, not a bad word for it. The the kind of the inability to to revel and uh, in and enjoy an implausible premise, or or just to sort of go to like uh, to sign that contract uh, with a storyteller, that tacit agreement that like okay, I, I want to be taken on a ride. Uh, 
I want to be taken on a ride uh, with you, right? Like, what do you what do you gain? What is it? What is the thing? I'm really curious about this impulse to like explain it with science, or you know, to to kind of hook it into to their experience. It's not like they're they're not going to buy it. You know, he's a half lizard. He's a half lizard. Okay, yeah, you know what like I mean. Mi- mi- you don't want your pool midichlorinated. Right, like it's, uh, it's no good. <laughs> so, so, and by the way, I'm working on a remake of American Tale, except that they're not mice; they're actual people. It really focuses on the diseases that immigrants get when they are in boats for a long time, like you know. So, various... you, mean, you mean you're remaking Once Upon a Time in America? Yeah, but all the same songs as yeah, except, except, except with the, the lyrics. Yeah. The lyrics slightly changed, right? Uh, yeah. it, would be, it would be, there are no murderous pogroms in America. <laughs> the streets are paved with, uh, you know, I don't know, uh, uh, yeah. cobblestones. Yeah, but we found in market research that everybody loves the pigeon who lives in the Statue of Liberty, and so we're going to keep that. Uh, <laughs> But it's going to be hyper-realistic uh, CGI. Gritty, gritty you know anti-heroes <laughs> is what it's going to be about. It's gritty, gritty, anti, gritty anti-pigeon. Yes. <laughs> okay, so l- let, me, l- let me point out a couple of parallel trends here going on with this like, trend to grittiness and re- realism, right? Um, the first being with uh, the, 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 the Batman movies, right? Um, which uh, started out in the 90s and reached you know this uh, sort of terrible pinnacle of gaudiness and um, and, 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 and cheesiness and uh, and, and unbelievableness um, and you know that sort of uh, fell by the wayside and was re- resurrected by Christopher Nolan with this gritty dark version of it right and then you also look at Total Recall or sort of at similar poles right where the uh, the 90s version had all these very fantastical elements they went to Mars or these mutants um, Arnold's eyes bug out. Arnold's in it, uh, and then to this uh, modern version we have, which is seemingly much more realistic, um, and with Colin Farrell, who's not quite as outsized of a personality. Um, so, is there a similarity? Is there a connection with them with those two trends uh, based on the conversation we just had? Well, can you clarify exactly what are the two trends again that we're looking at right here? It's the, the move of- away from the fantastical uh, to this gritty, uh, quote unquote, realistic portrayal of things that really when you when, when you just look at the base premise of it um don't really have any business being portrayed realistically and what's the second trend oh that is based that is the trend and it applies to both um i i'm saying that it might apply to both batman and, oh. to, and, and to total recall oh yeah of course definitely i mean it, it's so I, mean, I think it, i think it goes back to like the dark knight returns right in, like 1986 1988 whenever it was right the this like, graphic novel right the, yeah that, that we want to take that at some point a lot of our culture that at some point our representations of either surreality or icon or symbol became so overdone and outlandish that they, we just stopped identifying with them anymore. Like this is the the one one property that's connected is the Adam West Batman actually because it yeah. posed it faced the same problem when they were deciding to make it. Uh, they were like, okay, we're going to make a TV show about Batman. Everybody loves Batman, and they hire this guy to do it. And he's like, Batman is stupid. Like he has a dog that fights crime, and he has a, a bunch of belt that has all this stuff on it that doesn't make any sense. He goes against aliens, but he's a guy wearing a cape. None of this makes sense. This is all very foreign to me. Uh, I don't feel comfortable with how far this is away from anything that seems plausible. Now, it didn't start there. Like you know, when Bob Kane started Batman, it was much more grounded, and it kind of took this journey uh, that increased its distance away from the kind of authentic core of the story. 
and the culture in general got to this point where it wasn't really comfortable with uh, the, the, the distance that had been made between the, the core of the story and the way that it was being portrayed. And so with the Batman story, they're like, well, if I have to make it, I'm going to make it camp. You know, I'm going to make it crazy because if I make it realistic, it's not going to make any sense. It's going to be terrible, right? So I'm going to make it you know, bonkers. I'm going to make it, you know, a parody of itself. And Total Recall is, to an extent, a parody of itself. It's a satire. Like, the parts of the Arnold Total Recall are not a straight-down-the-middle sci-fi film. Like, I think Verhoeven, as he does in most of his movies, satirizes the genre he's working in while he commits to working in the genre that he's in. You guys love the word irony. I don't, but there you go. Like, there's an example of it, right? And I think that uh, in the 80s and the 90s, we saw this sort of cut the other way. Where you had seen these core stories that were really important to the culture that had gotten blown out and kind of become through the 60s and 70s. They'd explored campy sides of them, you know, like the Harlem Globetrotters are fighting crime and they're flying all over the world. You know, like like there's just this whole all these these core stories are being inflated and blown out and played with. And, and, and you know, postmodernism is having its play with a lot of them. And, and people are commenting on how. Um, and really the message of a lot of the Philip K. Dick stuff, because Philip K. Dick was also a, a drug addict for a long time. Just this sort of dissociative – so he believed in the you know, dissociations of reality and experience. Right, this was something he'd experienced himself, like sort of a drift, right? Like that's what a scanner darkly is about. Um, and uh, the culture had gotten this distance away from this core stories that people identified with, and so there was this backlash. I mean, made everything dark and gritty—not everything, but a lot of stuff dark and gritty and realistic. Uh, to the extent that that's such, you know, does that really correspond closer to experience? That's debatable. But like, it's the journey that brings us to Wolverine, to like the dark Batman again. You know, that kind of brings us back to like. Uh, stories about alcoholism and families and like um, – I'm trying to think of like actual kind of adult examples of this that aren't like uh, – because I think the trend cuts across the culture where it's like we're going to make this gritty and realistic and – Well, I'll um, – I, I want to speak, speak to it a little as well because I was thinking while we were talking about this of examples that run the other way that are commercially successful. Like are there examples of – Films, because we're talking films now primarily, that instead of shifting, uh, instead of shifting towards a gritty naturalistic interpretation of things, shift towards a bold four color black versus white, black versus white in the more in the moralistic sense, not in the racial war sense. Well, actually, let me go. Let me go you one better and do both. Uh, and and uh, you know uh, bring to your attention John Waters' Hairspray and the musical adaptation of it and the <laughs> film of that musical in uh, in you know in Candy Colors right like um, okay. the 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 original though it's not I mean it is certainly not one of John Waters' most transgressive movies I mean the the original belongs to a time and belongs to kind of this you know long-term artistic project of John Waters kind of painting uh, his picture of Baltimore and things like this, um, that, that is, for want of a better word, that uh, grittier. And when it was done as, as a musical, it was done on stage. Uh, you can't, you just can't speaking, put... Speaking of, let's, let's harken back to that time when the grittiest depiction of Baltimore in pop culture was John Waters' Hairspray. <laughs> well, it probably wasn't, probably wasn't a Hairspray. It was probably a different John Waters movie. It was probably like, you know, I don't know. Pink flamingos, like pink flamingos yeah, yeah, probably. <laughs> but um, <laughs> you know, 
That, uh, you know, so it's done on stage. On stage, you, it's hard to be as gritty as it is on film because uh, you can't put as much stuff. You can't put as much grit. You know what I mean? And you have to pay a union stagehand like $175 an hour to, like, haul in that grit. Um, uh, right? And, like, uh, anyway, you can't, you can't do that. And then the film, when the film with, um, uh, with you know, John Travolta, uh had happened uh, it was this sort of it was this sort of candy colored thing uh and more more black and white um both in the racial and the moral sense than the original had been and and artistically successful i i would argue okay. i mean i mean both- I'll, I'll i'll grant you that that's that's one example the example i was going for which is on a much larger scale was the lord of the rings movies which are which are not at all are not at all gritty in any meaningful sense. They're very big, very colorful, good versus evil, epic battles, etc. And were very commercially successful. I would I would also imagine, and sadly I still haven't seen them, but uh, or seen it. But the Avatar, uh, John Cameron's Avatar <coughs> movie, is also similar. I mean, there's some talk about oh, we're landing on this alien planet to exploit it of its resources, etc. But beyond that, we're, we're still – the movie is very much about the cinematic alien landscape and the immersion in this colorful – and perhaps too colorful, but this, the, the immersion in this amazing culture and just losing yourself in wonder versus concerning yourself with the gritty realities of day-to-day survival and people's failings, which is – which would be the naturalistic sense. I was so, going to I was going to bring Avatar up also in a slightly different connection, but I'll do it when you when you've made your point. But my point is it is it is possible for a movie to deliberately eschew naturalism and still succeed and still resonate and still find an audience. But I would also contend that it's pretty hard to do, or at the very least that it's easy to appear naturalistic or to at least trowel on that layer of, of verisimilitude to apply that cheap veneer of naturalism by, you know, you've got a protagonist, but oh, he's an alcoholic. Or you've got your protagonist, but oh, he's in a failing marriage. And voila, you have instant character. Yay! And all of a sudden your movie is gritty and realistic. Even when it's in fact the last Boy Scout and is not, a, is not at all gritty or realistic. But it's, it's a very easy choice to make, especially in the in the 80s and 90s and to a, to a lesser extent in our, our current generation. And so I think that's why you see a lot of it, because it's, it's very easy to inject naturalism. It's very hard to inject wonder. Yeah, and, or, or, symbol, or symbolism, you know? Yes. That, that is not um, – uh, what? That is not uh, naturalistic. That is not sort of re- the reported behavior of – uh, you know, average people walking around the street uh, that you might see in your life. And yet, uh, at the same time, kind of rings true in uh, in some sort of in some sort of human sense. And I was going to I mean, I was going to bring Avatar up as a, I, I was going to connect the phenomenon to to sort of remakes. Right. Like uh, because um, to movie remakes specifically and not theater remakes. And I'll tell you why in a second. Um, the uh, you know, so, uh, wow, God, a lot of thoughts want to come out now. Harold Bloom made the, the sort of <laughs> – how many times have you heard that on this podcast? Harold Bloom um, made the kind of the linchpin of his uh, theory of literary history, uh, the idea of a, of a poet uh, doing what he called a strong misreading of the poet uh, that, came, that came before. That is to say, like these, these huge lurches forward – um, in his great man theory of literature were to do with uh, kind of redoing redoing um, uh, a predecessor, getting it wrong 
and uh, getting it wrong sort of gloriously instead of just getting it wrong kind of cheaply or or reacting in in uh, in a cheap way. Right. And so um, you have Shakespeare to Milton, for example, like a huge step forward uh, in in writing blank verse, a huge step in a in in a different direction in writing blank verse. Um, So I'd argue that a lot of these uh, remakes are uh, weak weak misreadings of the of the tradition right and and one of the reasons i think avatar was a strong misreading was that it um uh was the performance capture was the kind of half animated half life performance uh aspect of it um i happen to know i mean i happen to be here in england and i'm doing a a four-week course in classical acting Right. Um, because I am I am hungry to get ahead in business. So uh, here I am, uh, you know, studying right like Shakespeare and the Greeks uh, here in Oxford for four weeks. And um, and let me tell you, we have in classical acting, we have like tools to actually get at this sort of sense of larger significance without resorting to the, you know, to the 20th century psychologically realistic model of of naturalistic acting. And one of them is mask. Right. Like you you put on a mask as an actor, as a character, and it sort of frees something. And suddenly you can be like a lot bigger and you can kind of access that sense of like ancestral memory or kind of shared humanity, human archetype. And I think that the the blue, the blue like uh, uh, cats with boobs in Avatar functioned as masks. Right. Functioned as forgive me as avatars right that kind of let the uh, that let the performances kind of push past the the 20th century world um uh, sorry 21st rather century world of just naturalism of sam worthington kind of mumbling and and walking around you know sort of mumbling to himself as he does um and into right in into something else that you know though though perhaps it was not the the most profound um statement of of drama or of of acting or of storytelling uh was at least uh, we we can agree i think supremely resonant uh based on its its huge commercial success cuz they were doing mass th- they were doing you know greek tragedy or something they put their masks on and uh and so that's i mean that's that's sort of one tool for kind of pushing you know i don't know but I, I, for pushing uh, through that barrier so Matt, that you're calling that's the strong misreading well i no, i i mean i guess i confused i confused i confused a lot of things i'm not sure avatar is a strong misreading uh of a tradition but i i, I, I think I, well, regardless i think the strongest misreading has got to be putting Arnold schwarzenegger in your movie <laughs> well i i mean i don't know i mean you could say that no, I, t- I take that. I mean, I take that back. It's debatable. I- it's possible putting Lou Ferrigno in your movie is a stronger misreading. <laughs> <laughs> uh, just from the standpoint of pure physical. Uh, yeah, I, I want to. I, I just I want to think of a good strong, uh, good good case of strong misreading uh, in film. Not one's not coming to mind. I, I, what I, I mean, was saying, what I was saying, was more that a lot of film remakes are weak misreadings of the of the source material and of the tradition. I mean, I think the movie that keeps da- that I'm dancing around, hearing a lot of what you guys are saying, is the Avengers, right? Is that yeah? 
it, it's a movie where people are wearing masks that, that sort of makes their existence in their world like a little bit easier to accept, right? Despite the fact that it's not very gritty. I mean, it's tough to say because it's not gritty, right? That's, that's one thing it definitely isn't, is gritty. There's a lot of bright colors. There's good and there's evil. I mean, there no, are. I mean, the, the, the 32nd opening credit sequence to Night Court is grittier than, <laughs> <laughs> you know, than, than the Avengers. Right, this is true. There's not a lot of yeah. There's not a lot of grit there, and I think you know the the Whedon, the Whedon esque aesthetic is one. And, but although to Avengers, I mean, just as Arnold is the soul of Total Recall, the soul of the Avengers is Robert Downey Jr. and his kind of reinvention of kind of playing a, a pop superhero, right? As kind of uh, giving it a psychological life, but at the same time also uh, imbuing a sense it of glee. With, I mean, a yeah. sense a, a sense of kind of, of of what has been called on this podcast joyousness, right? Yeah. And, and I mean, I hear when I've read about these movies that you know R- that Robert Downey Jr. will talk to the other actors and will kind of tell them, "No, this is easy to do. This is how you do it." Right? I think he had a big talk with Mark Ruffalo that convinced Mark Ruffalo to do the Avengers, where he kind of explained how they were going to have a good time and how it was going to work as an acting project, uh, sort of stylistically and professionally. Um, That's yeah. oddly parallel to them having to talk the Hulk um, or Doctor Banner into joining the Avengers in the movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely, definitely. Life um, imitates art. Imitates Imitates life, imitates art, imitates. <laughs> but imagine a gritty remake of the Avengers movie, right? Like, I mean, we just saw like a gritty, a gritty Spider-Man reboot, right? I mean, I didn't see it, so I guess I, we didn't see it. We as a there, but uh, but I mean, a gritty remake of Captain America. <laughs> like sure. it's- we, we, yeah, we means America. Yeah, no, I get, I get it. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, and of course, one of the things that the Avengers has in common with the original Total Recall is there's a lot of people who are um, outlandishly muscular in that movie, which I think is a thing in movies that is kind of, it's easy to poo-poo. You know, it's easy to say, like, oh, this is bad, or this is, you know, objectification, or it's, you know, it's overly simplistic, it's stupid. Um, But I I mean, I think that, uh, you know, putting kind of a physical specimen in your movie is something that has an effect on how the movie is is portrayed. And I think that there's been a trend – one of the trends in movie making – and you know the sort of like labufification of film, right? Is like is these this move to these heroes who are kind of sort of smaller and less impressive. And I mean, I know that there's a certain amount of homoeroticism in that. And I mean, I don't want to like eschew that or like shame it, right? But I mean, I don't think it's the entire reason of why these sorts of things, why why characters like Arnold, who are sort of such huge presences, literally and figuratively, uh, function so well in these action movies, right? Like. Um, I don't know. I also kind of thinking of uh... well, we've 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 replaced the kind of what we've called the the what kinesthetic enjoyment or the kind of kinesthetic glory of the you know of the form of the body represented on film that you see as kind of the animating spirit of like Greek sculpture, for example, and you know uh, the Olympic spirit that we never got around to talking about that on this podcast. Um, we've replaced that with a kind of uh, the worship of that uh, the worship of us and our capacities at our best with uh, a, a kind of worship of technology. Which is really sort of soul deadening and and kind of regrettable, I think. I think that it's the nail on the head in terms of the new Total Recall movie. I mean, the robots, the elevator shafts, like half the movie feels like you're riding the air train to Liberty or to like JFK or something. You know, like it's just which is a local color joke about going to the airport in New York City. But um, for some people, that's their idea of a good time, Pete. Well, here I'll pose a quick Olympic question in the waning minutes of of the podcast. Um, 
what like so one of the things and this sort of comes out of total recall one of the most problematic parts of total recall is the fights between the man and the woman right when you like have this fantasy about punching your wife right which is not acceptable under any circumstances um but it's also a lot of this is about what we're talking about people will bring up objectif- objectification a lot right and uh and kind of like pe- you, people's bodies as objects, as reducing the person to less than what they are. Uh, there's been a lot of sort of back and forth, I think, on this Olympics as people have wrestled with both kind of marveling. And I think this is you know, gender-based and sort of gender identity-based as much as anything else. Marveling at the physical bodies of the Olympians and also kind of like poo-pooing and bemoaning uh, how fixated we are on like the – like staring at the physical bodies of the Olympians. Like I'm thinking about the controversies over, say, beach volleyball, right, while at the same oh, time yeah, like well, guess, front-page I mean, pictures guess, of swimmers stretching, right? Sure. Like, I, mean, uh, I guess that the outfits have gotten skimpier. I mean in, yeah. in every sport. I mean track and field, they're, they're you know wearing a skimpy two-piece, right? Like uh, beach volleyball, same thing. Uh, but but uh, oh my god, this is – this is this – I just hate this like middle-brow bourgeois hand-wringing leg-crossing crap. Have these people <laughs> – What a beautiful sentence. <laughs> have these people never been to the to, – to like see a Greek sculpture? You know, have you never been to the Louvre, right? Like you're staring at the bodies, right? Like why not? If you're going to stare at bodies, why not the, the – you know, I don't know. Why not the bodies in, in peak condition that can do – admirable things, you know, that I can only aspire to, right? Like it's, I, I think it says less about, I think it says less about the, the, the phenomenon itself and more about the diseased mind of the observer, right? Because the, the idea that it's, it's somehow like prurient or some, or, or some uh, prurient is maybe the wrong choice of word that it's, that it's somehow edging towards uh, pornography to to admire these these uh, incredible athletes who can do fantastic things, um, that that says something about where your mind is at. You know what I mean? You've been like you've been like trolling through your spam folder. Uh, you know what I mean? A little too much, and like. Uh uh, never mind. I'm sorry. I, I don't want to. I don't want to send us down uh, the <laughs> straight into straight into like NC17 spam filter territory. But like, uh, you know, I don't know. Now that that said, the the problem I think when it is when these images get used commercially, right? Um, and I, you know, I'm thinking of like, uh, the one, the one that you see all over England is, um, uh, she's a heptathlete. She's a British heptathlete. She just won the gold. Lindsay, Lindsay Ennis, right? Um, uh, someone will actually me if I got that wrong in the comments, but like, um, you know, and her, like her toned midriff in her, you know, skimpy track and field two, uh, two pieces, Ben, you know, it's, uh, it's Jessica Ennis, Jessica, Jessica, Ennis. Jessica Ennis. Sorry. I don't know where I got that wrong. Uh, very, very sorry, Jessica. I know you're probably listening to our podcast because you know, <laughs> it, it probably doesn't take you very long to train for the freaking Olympic. No, um, Jessica Ennis, right? Like, and so when, when it's used as like a commercial, come on to try to get you to do something, um, uh, I think that's when, that's when, when the, when the image is used in a way that is, that is manipulative, uh, that's, that's when, that's when I think it edges into that creepy, that creepiness territory. But for God's sake, let's admire the, 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 the bodies of people who have done amazing, admirable things with their bodies, right? Sure. I mean, we're supposed to admire the minds of people who do amazing, admirable things with their minds, right? Yeah. We're supposed to admire the, um, the 
um, I don't know, music collections of people who've done amazing, admirable <laughs> things with their music collections. <laughs> I like how it's more acceptable to compliment somebody's like vinyl than to compliment their like legs. Well, they're, uh, <laughs> they're not strictly analogous because there are different. I mean, not to completely derail the podcast in its last hour, but there are different. <laughs> in its last hour, we're only beginning the last hour. <laughs> I know, I know. In, in hour number two. But there, there are different parts of the brain that are firing when you admire someone's legs than when you admire someone's record collection. And the, the act of admiring each is not strictly analogous, but that's, that's a whole other day's debate. Sure. Uh, well, we'll we'll leave that. To, I mean, and, and I'm sorry, Pete. I feel like I took your question and like w- went on this uh, went on this screed, this terrible rant. Um, but uh, you know, but we, you know, what we can do is we can leave it to the uh, to the the uh, listeners. Um, if you want to join the conversation, uh, if you want to tell me I'm I'm full of it, and in fact, this whole Olympic thing is just smutty. The whole Olympic movement is just a, a front for pornography. Feel free to do that in the uh, <laughs> in the comments on the show notes for this episode. You can call 203-285-6401, call or text 203-285-6401, and, um, uh, or you can uh, f- follow us on Twitter at Overthinking It, or you can email podcast at overthinkingit.com. We have so many ways. We're almost too, too available. Uh, before we go, uh, two announcements. The first from Mark Lee. Yes, um, on overthinkingit.com, we are giving away two, not one, not two, but two pairs of free tickets to see Terminator 2. <laughs> two. We're giving away two pairs of tickets to see Terminator 2 Judgment Play in New York City, Saturday night, August the 11th. You have to just go to the site, find the contest post, just leave a comment in there. You can put whatever crap you want into the comment that will enter it in. We'll randomly draw for winners uh, Wednesday morning, so you have until the end of day Tuesday to enter the contest to win free tickets to Terminator 2 Judgment Play in New York City. Enter now. And to, to the aliens who are listening to this podcast millennia hence, we're referring to our Earth date of Tuesday, August 7th, uh, 2012. Yes. Uh, Anno, Anno Domini, which is uh, the year of our Lord. But you, you probably uh, have your own opinions about that. Oh, alien. Oh, great alien successors of ours. Um, uh, one more announcement, which is that if you are in uh, the United Kingdom or elsewhere in Europe and feel like coming to the United Kingdom between the Olympics and the Paralympics, we are going to have in London the London 2012 Overthinking It meetup. It will be the evening of Tuesday, August 21st. Uh, 2012. Watch the Twitter for more information, uh, including the location. Um, but it'll be, uh, uh, you know what? I actually don't even want to say uh, where it might be. Um, but uh, watch the Twitter for that. Tuesday, August 21st, or as they say in the UK, 21st of August, uh, the year of our Lord, 2012. Well, uh, that's it for this week. We'll be back. I'm not sure if I'll be back. Uh, with the, uh, the time change may get the better of us, uh, but it's been uh, wonderful. I was suffering like extreme podcast withdrawal. So thank you uh, for rescheduling, uh, guys, to, uh, to do this with me. And to the listeners, I'm sorry uh, uh, about the slightly diminished audio quality, though I packed a very fancy microphone to do this podcast uh, in my luggage. I did not pack the cable um, that connects it to the computer. So that was smart. Anyway, uh, this podcast in some form will be back next week. Until then, you can visit us on the web at www.overthinkingit.com where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve.
You guys, I found my belly button lint and I opened up my value pack. But inside of the value pack was just coupons for a trip to Mars. I'm not sure what to make of that. Get your pack to Mars! If I can't be on the podcast next week, guys, do a um, do a real gritty podcast. Do a gritty reboot oh, okay. of the Overthinking <laughs> Podcast. Sure. I'll bring my other. You're yeah. a hard man to find. <laughs> Welcome to the Overthinking Podcast, where we subject the trash that is humanity to a level of scrutiny. We probably should kill them all. Well, it's Mark Lee. Hello, Mark Lee. <laughs> <laughs> Why have you come back, Markley? To kill you. To give you value pack coupons. 